Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the May 25th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. In the first segment, UCI School of Education professor Emily Penner will talk about her investigation of the pedagogy of ethnic studies. In the second segment, Joshua Block of the Associated Students of UCI and Branda Lynn of Irvine Watchdog explore the possibilities in districted elections in the city of Irvine. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Emily Penner, professor at UCI School of Education. Her research focuses on educational inequality and policy and considers the way that policies, districts, schools, teachers, peers, and parents can contribute to or ameliorate educational inequality. She chooses the word ameliorate, a nuance about when we're talking about changing and improving, it's changing from something that is less than desirable. That qualifies a good deal of what we're going to talk about today. She's currently examining teacher recruitment and retention in constrained labor and housing markets, how curriculum placement policies affect student learning, and how state accountability policies might affect school level supports under the Every Student Succeeds Act. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Economics and International Relations from Claremont McKenna College, Master's in Education at Alliant International University, and her Master's and PhD in Education at UC Irvine, then a postdoc at Stanford. She's here to bring a cool, informed head into the Orange County and National Lab of Teaching Ethnic Studies at the high school level, supported by her very recent appointment as a William T. Grant Scholar with four other early career professors. She comes to us today from her home in Irvine. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Professor Emily Penner. Thanks so much, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you and congratulations on your award. Let's begin with your teaching days in under-resourced schools in East Oakland and Vista, which is in South San Diego County. Were they a formative experience toward this pedagogy of ethnic studies? Sure. So I had lots of different experiences across these two sort of school settings. In Oakland in particular, I taught there right at the height of No Child Left Behind. And that was a moment when teachers were not given a lot of control over what was happening in their classroom. And there were folks in my school who were experts (laughs) and had lots to bring to bear, but didn't always get the opportunity to leverage all of those skills. And more to the point, there were community resources that we weren't drawing upon. And our school had lots of students with lots of needs, um, and some of those needs weren't being met. And as a result, you know, we failed No Child Left Behind, meaning our school had to close and we had to redesign a new small school. And I was one of the group of teachers and community members and parents uh, and district leaders who got together to redesign that school. And that process was really transformative for the school. And I think it really centered the community and their wishes, but also leveraged a lot of the resources and strengths that they brought. And the redesign of that school was actually wildly successful. But I just um, wanted to interject a point. When you said weren't able to draw upon those resources, did you mean there was no access to them, which is a, a sort of an inequality there? 
Well, it's not to say that there wasn't the opportunity to access them. It's just that we had very strict guidelines about what we needed to be doing every day, that we were monitored to make sure that yes, we were on the same I remember that part, but page. it wasn't a matter of not having access. So there That's wasn't. right. Okay. That's right. I mean, you know, obviously we didn't have access to the kinds of resources that schools, uh, many schools Park. here in Orange County and Irvine might have, right? Yeah. Definitely not. But, you know, we were lacking in lots of different kinds of things for sure in terms of the resources and opportunities for students. But what I mean to say is that even if parents and families had great things to share with us, we didn't really have an opportunity in our day to invite those folks in and leverage their knowledge because we had to be on page 56 at 1030 (laughs) a.m. to to keep marching forward, right? And in our redesign of the school, we got to restructure things so that we could do a better job of meeting students where they were. You know, it was an elementary context, so that's pretty different from a high school setting where most of my work has taken place for this ethnic studies work in particular. But going through that experience of watching the professional capacity of teachers being limited to then moving on to this engagement in San Francisco where the district really empowered teachers to use their professional knowledge to create high quality curriculum, you know, that pivot for me has, well, it's been really gratifying to watch, first of all, (laughs) but also just, you know, is is a thing that really drew me to this particular context and setting and to try to dig into, you know, what's going on in ethnic studies in particular. It's it's not, there's many things about it that are different in terms of what teachers have been empowered to do and the ways that they're entrusted to use their professional knowledge and judgment. And that process of creating the curriculum for ethnic studies is something that's very different than what I saw in terms of my experiences in in East Oakland and to a a lesser degree in VISTA as well. I mean, the school where I taught in VISTA was a little bit farther along behind. Uh, It was not doing well by child left behind metrics, but it wasn't nearly as far on the pathway towards I'm going to call it like, you know, air quotes failure (laughs) as the school where I taught in Oakland. But there's too, you know, you could see teachers kind of struggling with the confines of a system that wasn't really empowering them to necessarily do their jobs in the same way. Well, but Vista was the poster school district, if I remember, years ago. Maybe it was before your teaching career there as a very intolerant political school board. Oh, um. Well, you know, there are definitely some political controversies in that school board, for sure. But what I'm talking about more is not the politics of it so much as just right. the uh, the ability for teachers to, to cultivate curriculum and then tailor it for the needs of their students. That's more what I mean. Okay. But that's a factor. And we're going to bring in some of that factor, though, as we progress here. So although your focus is in this study, Emily, is a high school program, how early is it most effective to settle in with ethnic studies curriculum? Well, you know, actually, we don't know the answer to that yet. The thing about ethnic studies is we have, uh, you know, it's a discipline that's been around for several decades. You know, it started at the post-secondary level, and it's making its move down to the K-12 space. And it's, you know, there's been classes in different districts that have often been championed by particular individual teachers or maybe a handful of teachers together. And that's typically been at the high school level. And we didn't have a lot of evidence of the impact of those classes until very recently. And what we don't have is any evidence of the impact of those classes at these earlier levels. There's maybe maybe a few studies that are like a, a case study of an example in one or two classrooms. That's the kind of level of evidence we're talking about right now. So 
I, it's not to say that there aren't districts that aren't thinking about moving in that direction. I, there's several, in fact. Yes, and Los Alamitos has it. They've just mapped out all the way K through two, all exactly. the way to high school. So that's have a chance to open that up a little bit. Sure. So, so there's very few, and those few classroom case studies, is there a geographic sort of frame of reference, a base that just for us to understand where that, where it's been No, you, you know, those geographic case studies are from a bunch of different states, actually. Okay. Yeah. And Los Alamitos is not the only district that's thinking about how to integrate ethnic studies Got concepts or teaching, you know, pedagogy, uh, teaching strategies, um, or even like more explicit units or elements of their regular weekly curriculum. It's not the only district that's thinking about doing that. And it's not to say that there aren't folks who feel like it's really has strong theoretical motivation to do it. But, but what I mean is that we don't really have any evidence of kind of the impact of something like that yet. Right, right. Well, I'm real curious. My listeners are certainly used to me bringing up the matter of literacy and literacy is, you know, this like a deep understanding of something, how something works, how something performs. And so how does ethnic studies, a pedagogy, how do you deepen that? How are there opportunities that make it a multidisciplinary curriculum to make this ethnic studies pedagogy stick? (laughs) Well, you know, the thing about ethnic studies is that it could be incorporated in lots of different kinds of subject areas. It, in many cases, has taken up home in, in social sciences, but there are certainly schools in the state of California implementing it in more of a literacy direction. There's also some ethnic studies to, or ethnic studies content integrated into mathematics courses or science courses. But in terms of how you might expect it to deepen literacy or improve literacy, you know, I think that gets to the heart of what it's theorized to do, which is, you know, to help center the experiences and academic contributions of scholars of color. And, you know, I think for students of color in particular, but perhaps for students from a variety of backgrounds, having the opportunity to engage with that kind of content and to see those stories and voices centered might be, can be just the right kind of catalyst to get students who might not be as engaged to be suddenly quite interested and to see folks from communities, from students' own communities as writers, as scholars, as academics, as scientists, as artists, I think is really helpful for adolescents in particular. (laughs) So far we've seen, we don't know as much as I mentioned about in earlier ages, but just seeing those voices and those stories represented, I think is important for students in classroom settings to have that experience. And I think that's one mechanism where we might expect ethnic studies to impact literacy. So as a sort of a transition to the question about the end game, that you're talking, I think, mainly about representation. Someone, a non-white sort of background can see themselves in any kind of uh, curriculum contributions from someone in a background that they identify with. So I would like to ask about what is the end game for ethnic studies? Is it for the students to be academically thriving? Is it a predictor of civic engagement? And I'm thinking of from habitual voting, jury participation, better bystander, better, what are you looking for ethnic studies to make students better educated? I I think there's lots of things that folks might expect to come out of ethnic studies, some of which I think we have evidence about and some of which I'm not sure that we do yet. That's Um, exciting, isn't it? It is exciting. And there's, you know, this is a space for very 
current <laughs> and active research. <laughs> so, I mean, the hope is that it will empower students to try to engage on an academic level, for sure. There's also sort of a hope of kind of, as you mentioned, a, a civic engagement or a community engagement, a deep investment, a deep under, building an understanding of students' communities, and then complementing that understanding with a level of engagement in a local community. For many, a key piece of the definition of ethnic studies is that the walls of the classroom are not, the, the doors are open, and that students spend time learning, but then they also spend time applying what they've been learning, of, you know, in service and care of communities. And that absolutely could take the form of civic engagement. It could take the form of lots of different kinds of community action or investment or projects. And um, certainly in the program that I've studied in San Francisco, that was a that was one of the units <laughs> was a youth participatory action in the students' communities. We don't have evidence of the sort of longer term transfer in terms of what civic engagement looks like years after folks are have taken an ethnic studies course, but I certainly think people hope that it will be transformative in terms of that level of engagement in the longer term. You also mentioned a couple of other things. I mean, in terms of being a better bystander, I mean, part of what folks also hope students will do is not just understanding or engaging with stories that are representative of different groups, but that they'll also engage with issues of inequality and racism and different structures of oppression, colonialism, all of these kinds of histories that are out there that shape students' worldviews, their opportunities, their experiences. And I think the hope is that by having some of that knowledge, that they'll carry that forward in terms of the kinds of ways that they engage with the world, the kinds of things they hope to do in life, but also the ways that they support their peers and their communities. And I think there's a lot of hope that it really reorients students into viewing themselves as embedded in these communities and as resources to engage with their community in, in a supportive way that's restorative and caring. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is Emily Penner, professor at UCI's School of Education, recently appointed as a William T. Grant Scholar with four other early career professors. And so we're talking about what are the goals of ethnic studies curriculum? So it's sort of like, I can see there's a through line with the justice component of what the student might learn. They could understand the inequalities from redlining could, could be a part of ethnic studies. Why do some people sure. get to inherit more real property than somebody else? And that, yeah. that through line is all the way into when that student is in college, why does that guy down the hall in my dorm, he has a huge loan he has to pay off, but I don't because I've got assets that he never had. I mean, there's that, that I'm thinking you're talking about maybe sort of civic engagement on a, you know, on a broader societal level. And there's this like one-on-one -on -one, as well as the better bystander kind of one-on-one. -on -one. There's so yeah. many aspects of them to, to retrieve their ethnic studies data and see the world they live in and the, you know how to participate and understand that and be uh, uh, you know allies right well and you know the idea is not that it's one fixed thing but that it's adaptable to different settings right and so uh, folks here who might be taking ethnic studies in orange county need to learn about 
for example, Mendes v. Westminster that helped kind of seed some of the court precedent for Brown versus Board of Education. They might need to learn about Japanese internment and the Japanese farm workers whose land got taken away here. But in a different setting, they might need to really focus on different histories and different kinds of structural inequalities that are more relevant to those contexts. And obviously, it's kind of relevant to learn about some of these histories and some of these issues across any of these courses and regardless of the location. But there's also an intention for folks to really get to know about the inequalities and struggles of their local communities. So, Emily, it takes a village to raise a child. We've all heard that adage. That village poses challenges, though, toward educating that child, those children. You are in the crossfire of that challenge where these culture wars are, they're both undermining and they're making the case for ethnic studies, aren't they? Um, I guess you could think about it that way. Yeah. I mean, ethnic studies is sort of born out of a struggle where folks are scholars of color, students of color felt the need to advocate for the opportunity to take up more space because they felt like their struggles and stories and histories and intellectual contributions were being excluded intentionally. (laughs) And they protested for the creation of the discipline of ethnic studies at the secondary level, especially in San Francisco State University and others in California. And, you know, that continued contestation of being able to participate as equals and have equal space uh, continues. Right. And as I listen to my peers weigh in when they are finally brought in on what ethnic studies has, is bringing into the curriculum now, there's an incredulity and indignation about not having had that material when we were back in the day in the school. <laughs> and so that, so ethnic studies could perform an intergenerational outcome. Potentially. I mean, obviously, we don't really know that yet to some degree, although one could kind of think about an interesting study about how that's played out at at an institution that has had an ethnic studies major for a long time, some place like many of the universities in the California state system, for example. But you're right, it is not a part of the content that those of us who grew up in California public schools <laughs> had the opportunity to experience. Any state, name any state anywhere in the country. <laughs> it was back, I was in school in the, in the 60s and none of this came I up. I mean, uh, as I mentioned, there have been some schools and districts that have had programs like Chicano Latino studies, even ethnic studies classes since, you know, sometime in more like the 80s or late 70s, 80s, something like that, or even or 90s. But it's often been individual teacher efforts. Um, there's only been one or two districts that have had kind of coordinated efforts like this for a long time. And it was made, but many of them were sort of movement activists. It wasn't a broader kind of participation in ethnic studies where that's the end game I'm imagining is, is that for everybody to get literacy about all aspects of how society has been developing. Sure. Let's get to your research. It's so important about how it's informing what you're going to be doing as a scholar for the William T. Grant program and where we are in this moment. Yes. So when I was a postdoc at Stanford, I got the opportunity to participate in a a study and, and through a partnership that Stanford has with San Francisco Unified School District. And a group of teachers, a collective of about 10 or so social studies teachers, had been working on developing an ethnic studies program. And they got some instructional support from some experts from San Francisco State University. And they did a pretty intensive period of course 
development. They taught lessons with one another, and then they got the green light to pilot the course in a handful of schools. So that pilot happened for several years. And, and then what was the name of the course? Ethnic studies. Okay. Yeah. And, okay. and so they tried it out in a couple different grades and levels, and then they kind of coalesced on um, offering it in ninth grade. And they got to the end of that pilot period and they had some internal survey data and they had a little bit of evidence about what they thought was going on, but they really wanted more information to try to figure out what they should do next. So they had this pilot period and they got to the end of it. And 2014, the school board was trying to make a determination about whether or not to scale up the program to make it a graduation requirement or to, you know, kind of just let it exist in this sort of smaller scale in the spaces Mm -hmm. where that early group of teachers had, had set it up. And they realized that they needed some support to conduct an evaluation that they felt could really give them the information they wanted. So they got connected to myself and my postdoc mentor, Tom D, who's my co-author on this study. And neither of us have backgrounds in ethnic studies. We have backgrounds as education policy researchers. He's an economist of education. I'm kind of more of a sociologist of education and policy scholar. And, you know, they knew that we had expertise in how to evaluate programs. And what we kind of learned in talking to them was that in a couple of the schools where they had been piloting it, they offered it to students in a way that made it possible for us to estimate the causal effects of this ethnic studies program. And as I mentioned before that, there was not a lot of evidence about ethnic studies and its impacts more generally. There was some descriptive evidence coming out of the Mexican-American studies program in Tucson. So it's not to say there was nothing out there. But in that case, you know, students could opt into the class. And so you might worry that there's something about the students who chose to take ethnic studies that would, you know, they're predisposed to be engaged in it. You might worry that also might contribute to the positive effects of the class that they found. But in the San Francisco case, in a couple of schools in the district, in some cohorts, they ended up assigning students based on their performance in eighth grade. So the district at the time had an early warning indicator for students who looked like they were at risk of dropping out in high school. So they had very low attendance, but they also had a GPA of less than 2.0. And so those students, when they moved from eighth grade to their new ninth grade campus, were enrolled in the course. They basically showed up and it was on their schedule. And they could go to their counselor and opt out of the course. And folks with higher GPAs could also go to their counselor and say, hey, I'm kind of interested in this and sign up for it. But they were basically given this extra nudge to take the class. And that meant that the kids who were just below 2.0 were effectively assigned to a treatment of taking the class. And the kids just above 2.0 who were identical on a bunch of other dimensions were not given this nudge to take the class. And that allowed us to sort of approximate the randomized experiment where we have the just below 2.0 kids compared to the just above 2.0 kids. And um, at the end of the year, we could compare them on a bunch of different academic indicators, including the attendance at the end of the year, the total number of credits they had earned, meaning they completed courses without getting D minuses and Fs. And most importantly, of course, their GPA in not in their ethnic studies or social studies classes, but in all their other academic subject areas. And that comparison identified some very stark differences. So this was a group of students who was pretty low performing coming in, and we found differences of um, something like 21 
credits, additional credits earned for the students who were in ethnic studies, meaning they basically completed about nearly four additional courses. Wow. We found a difference of 1.4 grade points at the end of the year. So that means, you know, we're we're students who are now in ninth grade, you know, who didn't take the course were around an average of a 1.5 GPA or a D. And the students who did take the course at the end were around a GPA of 2.9 or a C plus. So that means they were taking students and moving them from, you know, nearly failing a lot of courses to getting like C pluses and Bs. And, Over and, all know, the grades, they and, all improved. That's right. So wow, they improved not just in, you know, across their academic classes, but in particular, actually in math and science. And those are not exactly the classes that you think of as connected directly to ethnic studies, although they can be certainly <laughs> at that time, they definitely were not, it's, it, you know, intentionally at least. And so something about this experience for students really got them engaged in a way that they were not before. And that we did not have any evidence like that before. We had lots of theoretical motivation and some qualitative evidence of a pretty small scale saying that ethnic studies can be transformative, can be really beneficial academically. And we had this descriptive evidence coming out of Arizona, you know, indicating that students academics improved for taking the course. But here we really have causal evidence to say taking ethnic studies, at least among this academically kind of marginalized group, improves outcomes in a very dramatic way. Emily, Um, I want to find out, excuse me, if there is in presenting ethnic studies material, if there, I don't know if there's a way to have been able to investigate this qualitative aspect, but if whether the relationship between instructor, teacher, that is, and student, if there was a bit more sort of mutual respect in that content in the classroom, and that sort of raised the kind of engagement in the student, and they saw themselves as more of an adult, and they projected that into other classes as well. Is there any way to gauge that then, or will that be gauged in the future in your grant? Well, that's kind of the idea of the grant, for sure. But let me just say sort of like the hypothesized impact is, and and one of the kind of key ideas about ethnic studies is that students really take a very active role in running the classroom. Um, They're given some kind of sort of autonomy to help kind of direct some of the aspects of what's happening in the class. And I definitely think there is sort of a, if not like a mutual respect, some kind of like deeper level of support that could be happening in the class itself. I also want to say that we were worried that perhaps we had identified a bunch of teachers who were just very effective at all things, <laughs> and which yes. I'm not to say that they necessarily aren't, but what we found is we, to try to determine whether or not this was really a driving force you know, at work that was coming out of the course itself versus something that the teachers were doing in each of their courses, we looked at the same set of outcomes at the end of the year mm-hmm. for students in those teachers' other classes. So those teachers also were mostly social studies teachers. So they were also teaching U.S. history, world history, American government, those kind of things. And we looked at outcomes for those students at the end of the year. And we found that the students in those teachers' classes were not outperforming other students on those same metrics in those other classes, which suggests to us that it's something about the combination of those teachers and the ethnic studies content and Mm -hmm. material and pedagogy and experience that had this impact, not just something those teachers were doing. It's not to say that those teachers might not have, well, they certainly, you know, bring a lot of expertise and knowledge and skill to the teaching of ethnic studies. It's not to say that they're not bringing some of those skills into their other courses, but it's not kind of 
giving students that extra boost that we're seeing in the ethnic studies class. Wow. Wow. So, yes. uh, So, as I mentioned, this is sort of part of the point of this WT Grant Scholars Project. The district, after we gave them this evidence, (laughs) decided to scale up the program. And now they've been offering it in all of their high schools. And San Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. And San Francisco is not the only district that has been building an ethnic studies program. And so other districts are scaling up their programs. And so the idea is to learn from what's happening in a lot of these scale-up efforts and to try to link some of those classroom practices through observations, through having conversations with teachers and their professional learning communities when they mentor and support each other, and to link that um, more closely to what we're seeing with students and finding out if some of the impacts we saw in the early pilot phase are replicated as programs are scaling up and as new teachers are being brought into the fold of becoming ethnic studies teachers. So your lab is going to be where you've already had the case studies performed before, but so it's going to be throughout California. Is it going to be nationally working? It's it's going to be in a couple of different locations and some in California and some in some other states. Um, And I'm being intentionally vague there just because I, as districts are working on developing their programs, under the kind of current conditions, I just don't want to generate media firestorms for them. And But and, below and above the, the Mason-Dixon line? Oh, no. Uh, it's going to be all kind of in the western part of the United States. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's an important consideration. And eventually, though, William T. Grant people, we're looking, we're talking to you about <laughs> supporting other enterprises throughout the country because, oh. Well, so, and, and, and other scholars, right? There's yep, lots of... Yep, 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 Yeah, there's lots of folks out there who I think have lots to contribute to this research. And so I, you know, I hope funding agencies continue, not just the William T. Grant Foundation, to whom I'm very grateful, um, but other folks, you know, there's lots to learn here. And we have some initial evidence of some powerful impacts. But of course, as with any kind of evaluation, when something is piloted with a high degree of skill and fidelity, you always wonder what's going to happen when you move it to another space. And, you know, that's been a challenge um, for many other kinds of interventions in totally different content areas and with different underpinning motivations. Scale up and replication is a, is a challenge. But space meaning different grade level, different geographic area, or all of the above? All of the above. Okay. Well, this is going to be really exciting to watch. I can't fast forward enough to <laughs> find out what your yes. findings are going to be. This is, <laughs> you, so, you and uh, me and, both, yeah. Yeah. So this is a five-year grant scholarship so that is going to be when you are you'll start seeing some findings before that term that you're sort of submitting things by the end of the fifth year or do you get to continue researching and then you can report that's right the five-year term includes submitting some kinds of results or is it it's going to be all about compiling compile compile and then results are submitted after that five-year term I expect that there will be some intermediate results and that there's going to be some research that'll be shared early on or kind of at a midpoint and then some later work that's a little bit more of a cross-location synthesis that'll be a little bit farther down the road. Um, So uh, along with um, Professor Tom D and a collaborator, um, Professor Chardet Bonilla at um, UMass Amherst, we have been doing a follow-up study of that initial pilot cohort. And um, I Unfortunately, I can't talk with you about the results today, but the results from that study should be coming out, I, I, I think, sometime this calendar year, actually. Okay, well, um, let's, let's book a time. You come back and talk Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> exactly. We're not doing justice to this 
huge topic because it is, I think it's a societal game changer, this curriculum. Well, I, I mean, it's definitely made a profound impact for groups of students that we've been studying. So I think that's reason enough to invest some heavy research behind it and to try to figure out, you know, that it, there's lots of space to figure out what's working, how to continue to improve it, how to adapt it to different locations. I think there's lots of open questions and lots of opportunities for us to, to identify ways in which this can be a powerful lever for students. So... Although there are many other questions, I'll make this my final question for the broadcast interview is that we've seen this movie before about where other generations, they're sort of confounding, launching this kind of pedagogy. Locally, we've seen where creationism was foisted on the curriculum or attempts to, or how climate change was set aside in some of the science courses. I've had them on my show. I've had the teachers talking about that. And so I don't know what, it seems that that could interfere with the fundamental intellectual curiosity that you're trying to foster. How are you going to deal with that incoming, ongoing headwind of undermining what your cosmopolitan goals are in ethnic studies? Well, you know, I think our structure in the U.S. is that there's lots of different laboratories for democracy. (laughs) And school districts in different states um, make different choices. And some districts are going to move in one direction and some districts will move in another. But there's also legislation happening at the state level. I mean, for example, the legislature in California approved the development of a model curriculum for ethnic studies. And, you know, there's efforts in different other states to either adopt curricula or textbooks or have a requirement to offer courses or maybe even a graduation requirement. And I think my goal is to help produce evidence that districts can use to make decisions to best support their students, particularly their marginalized students, particularly their students of color who have felt disengaged from schools. And we want to give them evidence so that they can make decisions and adopt curricula and train teachers and get them engaged in ways that can really be supportive. And I think part of what is necessary is the space to do that research and to have that inform the conversation. And as the research comes out, I think districts are getting interested. They've tried many other ways to support academically struggling students. And it's not to say that ethnic studies is an intervention only for academically struggling students. That just happens to be where we've drawn evidence in my current study so far. But there's space to try to figure out impacts for other students as well. And it's a puzzle that districts are always grappling with. And in this particular space, we've seen that ethnic studies can be one of the ways to try to connect with those students. And I feel like many districts are looking around and trying to figure out by using ethnic studies, by using culturally relevant, culturally sustaining curricula and pedagogies, you know, if that's a way that we can unlock the underused potential of these students and get them engaged and get them flourishing, like, let's do it. (laughs) And let's figure out what we need to do to support our teachers in, in doing that. And so there may be political pushback, but you know, we're also accumulating some evidence to suggest that it, this can be a powerful lever for supporting students and districts or states, depending on, you know, kind of where the decision making is happening. They have the opportunity to make those decisions for themselves, but also we, you know, we want to provide them with evidence that can help inform those decisions. And that is going to be the challenge I'm sure you're fully aware of. I, I hear a conceit, a rueful conceit in your voice about that variation in states. And there are so many fundamental 
things that are not considered fundamentally the truths and that's gonna make the data that you will amass in your study, it'll make that data not a self-evident proposition that uh, for an improvement in education all over the country. I hear um, that, that is a rueful conceit that I hear. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, that, that kind of conceit isn't constrained to ethnic studies, right? That's true of opportunities for students more generally. We have Correct. Some that's, substantial. I, mean, I meant that was general. Yeah. I meant that's a general one, but yeah. that's right. We have substantial uh, inequalities in educational opportunities, and this is one particular example. But there's many. And as a teacher and as an education policy scholar, you know that's really what drew me to this research topic, but also this field more generally. You know, there's we have so many incredible students in this country that have so many possibilities ahead of them. And it's, I feel like it's our responsibility to give them the tools as best we can to empower them to go off and do the great things that they're capable of. And it's too bad that we're underinvesting in that. <laughs> it's too bad that we aren't giving them more resources, more supports for their families, more supports for their communities, because um, we're missing out on the potential that they have. Well, Emily Penner, thank you so much. This has been so uplifting, been so edifying. I really appreciate your taking the time with us on Ask a Leader. Sure, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. My guest was Emily Penner, professor at UCI School of Education and recently appointed as a William T. Grant Scholar with four other early career professors. We'll be right back with Branda Lynn and Joshua Block to talk about districted elections in Irvine. Welcome back to the show. My next guests are Joshua Block and Branda Lynn. Today, they're gonna to be talking about districted elections to be considered in the city of Irvine. Branda Lynn is returning as she's co-founder of Irvine Watchdog and has been serving on Irvine Community Services and Irvine Children, Youth, Families Advisory Committee member and the National Women's Political Caucus of Orange County. Joshua Block, mainly speaking today, is a third year student at UCI studying political science and international studies. At the time of the interview, he's chilling in Mission Viejo, but he'll be back in Irvine as soon as school opens here at UCI. Joshua is also an officer for the Associated Students of UCI in the external vice president office. And in this role, he's organized civic engagement efforts, continues to do that, and helps with coordinating 5,000 voter registrations. Previously, he's worked as a campaign manager for a city council race and as the California political director for March for Our Lives. Welcoming Branda Lynn back to Ask a Leader and Joshua Block to Ask a Leader for the first time. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Well, we have lots of irons in the fire that Irvine Watchdog has going on in Irvine. The focus today is going to be the work that Joshua Block's been doing with districted elections. Currently, Irvine, the mammoth city that is an at-large city council composition. And so I'd like to have Joshua talk about what his efforts have been to try to retool how the municipal elections occur here in Irvine. There are other cities that have now been 
running districted elections. And so Joshua, bring us up to date with where we are today in Irvine. Yeah, of course. So today we have what's called at-large elections for the Irvine City Council. And this basically means that the top two or three vote-getters won the election. It's pretty straightforward, but there's always a ton of people running, 14 people last time. So it creates a lot of problems. In particular, the problem is that 51% of the voters can control 100% of the seats. And this means that racial and political minorities don't really have a voice on the city council. And this includes groups such as the Latinx population, the Vietnamese population, but also political minorities like the Great Park community, neighborhoods impacted by all-American asphalt, or even UCI, which has been repeatedly told that we're not always a part of the city. What districts does is geographically arrange the city so that different areas can have a different say over one council member in the election. A group that is like a minority in the city can become a majority in that voting district, thereby uplifting racial and political minority voices. Right now, the Irvine City Council is debating this and potentially fighting a lawsuit against district elections. Which is an outside job. It's remind us this attorney based in Malibu, he's sort of been picking off one city after the next. It's kind of like his cottage industry. It's like his shingle he hangs. Well, I mean, the group that initiated the lawsuit is the Southwest Voter Registration Project, which deals with Latinx population and representation. And they just tapped in Kevin Shankman, who has a pretty successful track record. In fact, he's only lost once, and that was just a weird example. So the Southwest Voters Registration Project brought him on or just sought him out, or there was a sort of an, a natural coming together? It seemed like a perfect pairing. Both of them have been involved in this kind of effort, and they came together for this perfect opportunity. Okay. And so I'm hearing you talking about it's a, like a geographic sort of representation. So does the geographic representation, is areas over ethnicities? Because I'm, I'm wondering, like the Korean population, that would that dilute a Korean segment that is, has been really well represented over the last at least 15 years in Irvine? Oh, on the contrary. Drawing districts would create more plurality districts of AAPI communities. So we're going to see more Korean representation, more Chinese representation, more other AAPI groups on the council too, especially if the council increases seven people. Okay. And who makes the decision of where those areas are located? Since we're now watching that County Board of Supervisors is going to be remapping Orange County's Board of Supervisor districts. And that transparency has been a big question. So how would it work in the model that you are working toward it, that you're advocating here? So it's very different from the supervisor's election. That one's quite a mess, but here in Irvine, there's basically two paths. The first is if the city goes to districts voluntarily, then there will be community meetings, open city council discussions, and eventually a referendum on a map where all of Irvine has to vote on it. It'll likely be during the primary election if the timeline works out well, but it'll be approved by all the voters. The other path is the one that we're currently on. It's fighting a lawsuit against districting. And if we lose, which is a real possibility, then the courts will appoint a special master or an outside company to draw the maps for us. Historically, the second option is not as equitable and causes a bit of chaos. So you said the primary would be, the, that's the first option of creating these after public input. So the first way would be after public input. 
the city would say, hey, we really like this map. We'll have to get it approved by the voters. Since right, the right. In, a in a primary. And so would that be, it would be as far off as 2024, the earliest possible time that district elected districts would be on our ballot? It can be a lot sooner than that. We don't quite know the timeline, but historically it can be done pretty quickly. Courts tend to take a few months, but we can realistically see it by next year. So I can play a little clip here for listeners to remind them how Team Irvine weighed in last September 2020, their position on redistricting. I'd like for Branda and Joshua to respond to the answers I got from those candidates last September. We'll start with Farrah Khan. Your position on special districts for people to vote on their city council candidates. You know, I've been going back and forth on this one. I was supportive of it. I'm a little not too supportive of it right now because I don't think it'll accomplish the goal that we're setting for. But I do want to push for adding two more seats on the council. I think as a city as large as ours, five people on the council are not enough. Our neighboring cities with much less population have seven seats. We should have seven seats as well. Larry Agron. We are the largest city in the state not to have district elections. I think the city of Irvine is going to be forced to have district elections by a lawsuit going forward, but it would be better if the plan came from the people of the city themselves. I support district elections. I think it would make for better representation on the council in the city. Tammy Kim. As a woman of color, I absolutely am in disagreement right now of district elections because it will not accomplish the disenfranchisement of minority voters here within the city of Irvine. I think it will actually make it worse because the city of Irvine is very unique in the fact that we are not a segregated community. We're very well integrated and we don't have any cultural or ethnic enclaves here within the city of Irvine. And so districting could actually disenfranchise us more. But what I do support wholeheartedly is ensuring that we have more representation. We are nearly approaching 300,000. We have the same amount of city council seats as we did in 1971 with only 10,000 residents. So I am firmly supportive of the addition. Those are pretty good responses. Um, and there's some really legitimate concerns there. On the topic of integrated cities, I like to throw the case of Palmdale. They said, you know what, we're an integrated city. In fact, we're the most racially integrated city in all of America. Well, the courts did not agree with that in the slightest and made them go into districts still. And I, I think that's gonna be the case for Irvine too. But even when you're talking about other communities, if there's no racial segregation or integration or whatever, there's still political segregation. And what I mean by that is that there's different communities in Irvine, such as the Great Park community, UCI, All-American Asphalt, and other groups in Irvine that don't always have a voice on the council. If we had districts, then the All-American Asphalt community probably would have seen more progress by now and would have had a council member really just fighting to support them. So it's like a public choice kind of a theory that it supports is that there will be log rolling of specific geographic areas to promote some kind of public policy on the council to act. 
Yeah, that's one way of putting it. I also think that like looking at other cities can show that there's going to be more coordination, cooperation, but also a diversity of voices. And I think those are both very valuable things to add to the city council. Yes, Brenda. One of the concerns I have is regarding the agenda setting policy that we currently have. So um, Joshua mentioned that, you know, all American asphalt would perhaps have gotten further in their advocacy for a public hearing. But however, there has been a council member, council member Larry Agrin, who did place a memo and circulated it requesting a second so that the residents in North Irvine could be heard through a public hearing, which is what they've been asking for. So in that instance, I just wanted to clarify, I believe it was the agenda setting policy that precluded those residents from being heard, even though they did have one council member. So I think one important aspect to bring up is, even if we do go to districts, having the current agenda setting policy that we have How would that change things? And I'm like Joshua's input on that, like whether we would need to repeal the agenda setting policy or would it still increase representation having that agenda setting policy in place? I think it's pretty clear that district elections do a lot to help, but a lot of those advancements are undermined by the two council member rule. If we have one political minority on the council, they won't be able to get a second and actually have real impact to their voices. Well, and I guess driving all this is that the concern to how much the districted elections would sort of democratize the campaign finance background in municipal elections. Yeah, speaking about campaign finance, I think this would have a huge impact in taking out big money. Because if you need to run for Irvine City Council, that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes. You need yard signs for all of Irvine ads for all of Irvine, volunteers for all of Irvine. The mailers are astronomical in the amount we get. And they cost a lot of money too. (laughs) They add up really quickly. One mailer can easily cost $20,000. And those expenses really add up. So candidates have to seek out developer money or big money to fund those campaigns. If we're split into districts, whether it's four or six or whatever it may be, the amount of places you have to get yard signs for, volunteers for, et cetera, it's a lot smaller. There's a lot less barriers to entry for campaigns, a lot less expensives. And I think therefore we'll see a lot less influence of big money and developer money in Irvine. So other features that you haven't already talked about, Joshua or Branda? Yeah, I mean, one other really amazing thing is constituent services. Right now, if you have a problem and want to go to the city council, it begs the question of, Who do I ask? Who do I hold accountable if they're not doing it? And it's kind of difficult for just a small group of people or just a normal neighborhood member to get that actually done. If you have districts, then you know who to go to. You say, hey, this is my council member and I'll ask them to do it. And if they don't do it, I know who to hold accountable. And because those district members come from the neighborhood, they're going to have those same connections to the community that a council member right now representing 280,000 residents may not necessarily have. I agree with that completely. It's difficult and it's been difficult, you know, just as an Irvine watchdog volunteer, seeing these residents having to lobby all five council members, it makes it a lot harder as opposed to having their designated representative in their district who they know they should go to and who should be representing the concerns in that community, in that district. So I agree with Joshua completely. So Joshua, do you have any observations, any data about 
how the districted elections improve voter turnout, voter engagement in those other cities? I mean, one thing to look about is like when you're running for city council or any other election, how often do you actually get to meet the council members or the other candidates? You might see their mailers all the time, but how do you actually know them? And the answer is probably not likely. With district elections, since they're running in a smaller community, you're going to get the opportunity to meet them or interact with their campaign a lot more, which I think will be tremendous for voter turnout. They're going to be able to like canvas every house. They're going to be able to go to every event, every community, city council meeting, PTA meeting for that neighborhood. So I think you'll have great impacts for voter turnout. I have had Costa Mesa council candidates and successful candidates on my radio show, and they certainly exude a real enthusiasm for that voter engagement. And I imagine so it, it would it would boost how many people turn out for mayor and just generally lots of maybe other down tickets, maybe the local propositions and, and other measures. There must be evidence, Joshua, that it boosts all of those turnouts and engagements. Yeah, I mean, we see in other cities that people get more excited for local campaigns in a way that they normally don't because, I mean, let's face it, down ballot races are really cool, but also really difficult to get involved with. So knowing about it, interacting with it, gets people motivated in a way that's not typical in an at-large election. So for listeners that are hearing your pitch here, is there any kind of valued participation from them to proceed after this interview? Do you have any assignments for them? Yeah, so one of the big things is the Irvine City Council. Right now, they're not holding any meetings about this, which is horrible because we deserve a say in the City Council and especially something that could be so expensive as a lawsuit. So if there ever is a city council meeting, I encourage you to just go out there, be involved, zoom in and hear what they have to say and make your voice clear that you want one way or another. So aren't they being a little cagey, the the incumbent council members now, about the fiscal impact of having a challenge, a a legal challenge to the status quo? I, I would say so. Historically, lawsuits from Kevin Shankman can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. The and that would be that, out of would be retaining maybe legal help that's outside of the city government. So that's like an even bigger tab. Yeah, exactly. I, I believe the city just started retaining a new law firm to help with this. The expenses, I presume, will be astronomical. And that money can be going towards parks, towards people who need rental assistance, and so many other more valuable aspects, in my opinion. So do you have any other appeals, any other ways that other than the turning out emailing like a full court press for the next couple of months? I mean, is there a window that's essential for listeners to be active? The next few months will be critical because they can still settle the lawsuit and go into districts voluntarily at this point. There crosses a point of no return where we're in the lawsuit and we're going to fight it no matter what. So hopefully we get to the point where people can email all the city council members, because we don't have a specific representative right now saying like, hey, you know what, I'm concerned about the expenses of the city council fighting this lawsuit thing. Let's have communities in charge of it. Let's have us be able to make the maps. Randa? You know, you put this into perspective to spend hundreds of thousands of city funds in a fight to keep our outdated election structure 
It just doesn't make sense. And this is a really pivotal opportunity that we have to increase voter representation. And I think one key point that Irvine Watchdog is all in support of is an open, transparent process that includes the residents. The topic that we're talking about right now is voter representation. And to not include the voters in the discussion and in the decision-making is undemocratic. So I actually saw on social media yesterday, the asphalt group is initiating a rally at City Hall on Tuesday. And it's for all those apparently who whose issues have been denied a public hearing due to the agenda setting policy. So that's one way to make your voice heard the staff group, the Stop Toxic Asphalt Pollutants Group, um, has initiated that effort. And, you know, public comments, unfortunately, have fallen on deaf ears, especially if you submit e-comments, they're no longer read aloud during meetings. So you really have to just wait for your turn to call in during general public comments. However, if it's regarding a specific agenda item, they have been cutting off public commenters and stopping them from speaking because it wasn't under that particular agenda item. And you know what I would love to see is our city council welcome and show more grace to the residents. A lot of them haven't made a public comment before. Maybe they called in at the wrong time and they thought they could speak on anything under general public comments, which when city hall was open and the residents were allowed to make their comments in person, that was what was allowed. And they, they did show more grace. And I don't recall them ever turning away a public commenter. And because of the current situation with Zoom, and because the number of public comments that were the council members were being flooded with, especially in the early months once they were in um, once they were sworn in, they decided to no longer read them out loud. So it's just been one decision after another that has really shut out the public. And I think it would be great for City Hall to open up. And it would be great for residents to then really show up and express their interest in wanting to help increase voter representation and be part of the process. So we are recording this May 22nd. So the broadcast, listeners are hearing this on the same day as the meeting. When does the meeting start today for the, the day of the broadcast, May 25th? City Council meetings start at 4 p.m. You can watch via ICTV. And public comments can be made out loud on Zoom audibly, as well as you have the option to submit a public e-comment. However, again, those will not be read aloud. Council member Larry Agron did circulate a memo on May 13th, seeking a second to place the district election matter on the agenda for the city council meeting this Tuesday. However, it has not received a second. Hopefully it will receive one for the next meeting, first meeting in June, June 8th. And if not, we really need residents to speak up, show their support for wanting to be part of the process. And hopefully our city council will open up city hall and we'll start listening to the residents. Yeah. In addition, if we do get to the point where communities are able to help create the maps, there's one thing that I really would love your listeners to be on the lookout for, and that's Cracking and packing. I'm a UCI student and I want UCI to be able to have a voice on the council. And what I'm really concerned about is what happens to colleges across the nation. And that's their voices are diluted through gerrymandering or some other math wizardry. And it's no different on the municipal level. So one thing that we're concerned about is UCI being cracked, which is split in half and put into two different districts. And that would dilute the voice of UCI quite a lot. 
or likewise PACT, PACT with something like Turtle Rock, which is a great community, but it's also very different from UCI. And it would further dilute the voice of UCI. And this is something that's not just exclusive to UCI, but other racial and political minorities. The Great Park, All American Asphalt, or other racial minorities. Make sure that they have voices on the council and they're kept together, not cracked or packed with other groups. So the package of creating these municipal districts so part of that is going to be setting up who is the final arbiter of those maps that you're talking about, Joshua. So the process begins with five community meetings, which is like mandated by law. And once that happens, the city council themselves will choose a map after the community meetings. And then the voters will have to approve that map in an election. So right now, the city council is five council members, which it's, it was good at the start. 50, 60 years ago when the population was smaller. But now our Ryan population has increased exponentially and our council size has stayed the same. So one thing that works really, really well with districts is also increasing the size of the council, likely to seven council members so that there's even greater chance for representation. I think that when it comes to districting, they're inherently tied to increasing the city council because if we draw districts right now and then decide next year we wanna increase the size of the council, then we're gonna have to redraw all the maps and that's gonna cost more money and more time. It's best to do them both right now so we don't have to wait and can really make a difference now. We heard how Team Irvine weighed in last September. So with those that are voted in now and given how they're responding and some of the roadblocks with hearing constituents in meetings, is there a, are you concentrating on any particular council members to get them to support the districted elections? For me personally, I, I think all the council members have a lot of great strengths and a few of them have a couple weaknesses. I'm not targeting any in particular because I think everyone can stand to benefit from this. So I want every council member to be supportive of it. So you're, you're working on all of them? Yes. Okay. And yes, Josh, you were saying. So one other thing that listeners can do is learn how to make districts themselves. It, it sounds like a scary process, but I swear it's pretty easy. There's a lot of great resources out there online to teach you how to draw districts yourself. It's quite easy, kind of fun as a pastime. These include stuff like Dave's Redistricting app, Common Cause California, or District Er. That's district with the letter R at the end. They'll walk you through how to draw districts for everything from Congress to city council, and you can play with it and have some fun making districts to see what represents you best as possible. The place to begin is in the city council because that's the easiest place to start making effects. So I encourage anyone, if there's an issue that you really care about, see what the city council can do for you to support that. Districts, I believe, is the foundation for that, yeah. uh, for all other change. I mean, do you, Joshua, assuming there's seven districts, do you already have a map ready to go for, for that includes UCI? We've already shown it to some of the council members. We have a just an introductory map based on like the previous census data. And just to show that there is an equitable map that's possible to make. So I wanna thank Joshua Block and Brenda Lynn offering the opportunity for all of the voters of Irvine to be able to participate in districted elections. Thank you, Brenda Lynn and Joshua Block for being on Ask a Leader. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Well, that's my wrap. Petra Davis Johnson, named National Middle School Level Student Council Advisor of the Year from Las Flores Middle School, 
in South Orange County will be my guest next week. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone.